The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Morning. Good morning, Fountain of Life. I want to thank you once again for the privilege of being able to preach God's Word to you. Uh, it's been a blessing to be a part of this church for the last, I don't know, 18 years or so, and been a wonderful blessing that we have a pastor that trusts his elders to uh, fill in for him when he's when he's away and and you know big shoes to fill so hope uh, hope we do okay let's come to the word uh, let's come to the Lord in uh, prayer once again and uh, help me out with preaching his word Father in heaven your word is true your word is awesome your word has life. And Father, it is an awesome privilege to be able to preach your word. I pray, Father, for your help in preaching it faithfully, preaching it truthfully. And I pray, Father, that uh, through, that's not my agenda, my words, but it's your words that we hear, your agenda, that your purposes are worked out here today, Lord. And we just pray that your gospel will be proclaimed with, with boldness, truthfulness, and received with gladness. We ask all these things in your wonderful Son's name. Amen. So we are continuing our journey through the gospel according to Mark. And today we're going to look at an incredible story where Jesus and his disciples are caught in a very powerful storm. And Mark uses this story to further answer three very all-important questions. First question is, who is Jesus? Is he simply a good teacher, a swell guy, someone who dispenses Wise advice. Is he someone we just take or leave? Is he an example of how to be a good person? Is he simply someone to emulate the things you like about him while ignoring the things you don't? Who is Jesus? Most people believe he is an historical figure. Whether they believe in God or not, they actually believe, most people actually believe that he roamed the earth. So who is he? Mark has been showing us who Jesus is. I mean, right off the bat, um, <clears throat> he proclaims that Jesus, uh, he proclaims Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Mark 1.1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ is his title, and it means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Jesus is the expected king in the line of David as prophesied in the Old Testament. God promised to send one who would deliver and restore Israel. God promised to send one who would make all things new again. So there's definitely something different about Jesus, who Mark says is also the Son of God, meaning that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And Mark shows us that, the, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. As Jesus demonstrates his ability to deliver people by driving out demons, and he demonstrates his ability to make all things new by healing and cleansing people. And God promised the divine king would come, and that king has come as Jesus Christ. Now the second question Mark answers is, what did Jesus come to do? At this point in his book, Mark, uh, Jesus is preaching and teaching. 
And what is he preaching and teaching? Well, he's telling people they need to repent and believe in the gospel. <clears throat> but what is repentance? It's a turning, a turning of your essence, your entire essence, your, your body, mind, and your soul away from sin, away from the things of this world, and to the things of God. In other words, to turn away from worldly treasures and to the king of kings. You begin to want to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Then to become convinced that the gospel is true, to, you begin to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the third question is, how do we respond to him? And it's here that we will head into the storm with Jesus and his disciples. We will see the disciples have a crisis of faith. And we will see how the disciples respond to this crisis of faith. <clears throat> now, as we look at the story, it's important to point out that the story is full of details that strongly suggest that this is an eyewitness account. Mark was an associate of Peter, the apostle Peter, and Mark is writing this gospel of Jesus. In, in, writing this counsel, excuse me, in writing this gospel of Jesus is recounting Peter's experience in following Jesus. Now, eyewitness testimony typically contains certain details that, as they remember them, whether they are important to the story or not. And Mark mentions details that are unnecessary to the story, but yet are marks of an eyewitness recounting what happened. So he mentions the time of day, the presence of other boats, the vivid detail the boat was already filling, the cushion Jesus was sleeping on. All these details strongly suggest that this was a real event told by a real person that was there in the middle of it. Mark, therefore, is giving Peter's first-hand reporting of this actual event. And furthermore, this story is more than just a simple retelling of an event that happened, because this telling of this account exhibits sophisticated theological thought. And we will see strong allusions to passages in the Old Testament. And Mark is using these things to tell us who Jesus is. So we're going to present the storm in four scenes. And after that, we'll look at um, how Jesus took on a far greater storm. And then we'll look at what should be our response. So once again, we'll look at the storm in four scenes. We'll present four scenes. Then we'll look at a storm, a far greater storm that Jesus endured. And then we'll look at what should be our response. <clears throat> so scene one begins with Jesus in a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And he's preaching to a very large group of people. And this crowd appeared as more and more people were hearing about what Jesus was doing. Jesus had healed many from illnesses and delivered many from demons. As word spread, the crowd grew. And everyone who had diseases kind of pressed around him to touch him and be healed. And Mark begins this passage of Scripture in verse 45 with, On this day. Before we continue, we'll take a brief flashback to see what happened on this day. How did Jesus end up teaching in the boat? And we're going to see that this has been a very long day. This day actually begins all the way back in chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Jesus had a long and busy day of preaching and teaching and healing. The day includes confrontations with the Pharisees, where they accused him of being demon-possessed. 
He endured his family, saying he's out of his mind. He was constantly surrounded by a, a huge crowd because they wanted something from him. And all day long, he was serving God and ministering to people. He was showing compassion to them by healing them. He had not eaten all day. If you look at Mark 3.20, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd, be, crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. That's how many people there were. That's how busy they were. They could not even eat. With the crowd constantly pressing around him, Jesus moved to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He gets into a boat so that he can have a buffer between himself and the crowd. Why? So that he could teach, because that's what he wanted to do. And his teaching and his preaching was far more important than his healings. Now, why would I say that? Back in Mark 1, chapter, uh, verses 38 and 39, Mark writes, And he, being Jesus, he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So why is preaching and teaching more important than healing? Well, first of all, God wants you to know him. God loves us and wants us to know him. And Jesus is here to grow his kingdom. So how does he grow his kingdom? Through the preaching of God's word. People come to know God through the preaching of his word. Now remember the last two weeks, we looked at how Jesus used four parables to show what the kingdom of God is like and how it grows. And he used a couple farming illustrations about spreading and planting seeds. And seeds were used by Jesus in these parables to represent the word of God. So the kingdom grows through the spreading and planting of God's word. And that's why God's, preaching God's word is so important. The reason why preaching is more important than healing is because you can be sick and lame and enter into God's kingdom by believing God's word. It is in God's kingdom where you'll be healed and made new again, no more illness, no more disease, no more death in God's kingdom. So the question is, which would you rather be? Healed by Jesus, but excluded from his kingdom because you despise God's word? Or be unhealthy, parts of your body not working, but included into God's kingdom because you loved and you believed God's word? Now, for Jesus, it's been a long, crazy, demanding, and tiring day. From early morning until early evening, Jesus is constantly surrounded by people, teaching them, healing them, all without eating, and now evening has come, and it's time to get away for a while. Time to rest, get recharged. Jesus, truly man, was tired and hungry. And Jesus said to his disciples in verse 35, let's go to the other side. Now, the boat they're in, well, not a huge boat, was not a little rowboat either. The boat was about 27 feet long, almost 8 feet across, about 4 and a half feet high, a total capacity of about 15 persons. They actually found a boat like this uh, in 1986. It was recovered from the mud in the northeast shore of, or northwest shore, I guess, of the Sea of Galilee. And the Galilee boat, this Galilean boat, uh, corresponds to the particulars of, this, of the boat described in this story, as well as to depictions of ancient uh, artistic renderings. 
And you know, this is just a few tidbits to tell you that we're talking about a real event and, and to kind of give you an idea of the, of the setting of Jesus and the disciples. So the disciples were extremely confident this boat was sturdy enough to cross the Sea of Galilee. It was a boat that they were you know, experienced with and a boat that they have been co- uh, confident and, and comfortable in being in. Now remember, Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? So let's get in the boat with Jesus and the disciples to find out more of who Jesus is. So when evening came, verse 36 says, and leaving the crowd, the disciples took Jesus just as he was, while he was tired and hungry. They didn't go back to the shore to get anything. They picked up the anchor, untied the boat, and started to sail to the other side. Now, presumably, Jesus wanted to go to the other side so that he could preach to a new group of people, because teaching and preaching is what he wanted to do. He wanted to reach as many people as possible. And Jesus was living out what he taught earlier in the day in the parable about sowing seeds. He was growing God's kingdom. In verse 36, it says, The disciples took Jesus just as he was, and there were, and there were other boats with him. Now, the other, mention of other boats with him, while details that suggest eyewitness testimony, probably contain many disciples other than the 12 disciples who were introduced to us as apostles starting in Mark 3.11, or 3.13, rather. So Jesus and his disciples began peacefully sailing across the sea. As scene one fades away, we shift to scene two. All of a sudden, the weather got rough. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose... And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, I'll point out that the Sea of Galilee is called a sea by tradition only. It's actually a big lake. It's about 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the face of the earth. It's about 700 feet below sea level. The lake is surrounded by steep hills, some reaching about 2,500 feet. Off to the east lies Mount Hermon. It's about 9,500 feet above sea level. And the cold upper air from Mount Hermon and the surrounding hills are continually clashing with the warmer air from the, from the lake. And this causes severe windstorms and thunderstorms. The lake is relatively shallow, about 150 feet deep, so that makes it easier for the winds to whip up large waves. Who cares, right? Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because it's not uncommon for dangerous storms to occur on this lake. Uh, massive storms occur on this lake, you know, even today. As, as, as recently as May of 2022, Israel Today's headline read, Bible-level windstorm batters Sea of Galilee. Now, last storm had gusts of up to 87 miles per hour and caused millions of dollars worth of damage. So there's some big storms here. So imagine being in a boat with winds stronger than you've ever experienced, with waves taller than the boat, splashing into the boat. Because that's what Jesus and the disciples were experiencing. So the storm the disciples were caught in must have been incredible, since at least four of the disciples were professional fishermen who, presu- who probably experienced storms on the, lake, on, the, on the lake before in a boat like what I described earlier. So Mark 1.14, it says, passing, this is Jesus, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Mark 1.19, and going on a little further, he, Jesus, 
saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. So at least four of the disciples were experienced fishermen with experience on this lake, and they were terrified, absolutely terrified. Mark used the word seismos to describe the storm. Now, most of us in California need no translation to know what the word seismos means. You know, we get the word seismic from it, which, which has to do with earthquakes and seismic activity. So this is one big earthquake of a storm. With hurricane-force winds, six to ten-foot waves splashing up and over the four-foot walls of the ship, filling the boat with water, this was a storm that shook the disciples to the very core of their being. They thought they are going to die. They were panicking. Can you blame them? Where is Jesus in all this? He's sleeping on a cushion in the back of the boat. Now, here is one of the illusions of the Old Testament that I was talking about. If you remember the prophet Jonah, in chapter 1 of Jonah, a huge storm arises, a storm that threatens to sink and destroy the ship, killing everyone aboard, and where's Jonah? He's asleep in the bowels of the ship. Just like in Jonah, where the crewmen were terrified by the ferocity of the storm, so were the disciples terrified by the ferocity of this storm. But what did Jesus say they were going to do? He told them, let's go across to the other side. What did the disciples think was going to happen in the storm? They didn't think they are going to make it to the other side. Because the disciples do not yet trust Jesus for who he is. And instead of trusting Jesus, they are terrified. In the choice between fear and faith, they chose fear over faith and accuse him of not caring. Verse 38, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see we're going to drown? Don't you see we're not going to make it to the other side? Don't you love us? Does Jesus love them? Does Jesus care? There on the cushion in the back of the boat, we see Jesus in his humanity getting much-deserved rest. Remember, he spent the day pouring on his life in service to his Father. Jesus had this crazy day pouring his life out because he does care. He had compassion for the people, Spent the whole day teaching and healing them, all without food. Remember, Jesus is truly man. He got tired. He got hungry. He poured his life out in service to God. Jesus was taking a peaceful nap. He was getting recharged. He was getting rest. Jesus, in taking a peaceful nap during this tremendous storm, shows his complete trust in God in the midst of adversity. Much like the farmer in the preceding parables that Jesus taught his disciples in chapter 4, the farmer completely trusted God's providential working over all obstacles and adversities. Disciples forgot that when Jesus said, let's go to the other side, they were going to get to the other side. 
They may get wet, may get jostled about, but they're going to get to the other side. And this storm was the one thing to convince them that he didn't care. They chose fear over faith. But faith is more than having a skull full of knowledge. Earlier that day, the disciples were personally taught by Jesus. Jesus taught and explained the four parables to them. They had the head knowledge. Faith is more than being able to recite Bible verses. So what is faith? Faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And genuine faith is complete trust in Jesus and in the Word of God. So I ask, where is your faith? We should ask ourselves, was this storm a coincidence? Did it just so happen that after Jesus teaches them privately about the kingdom of God, that includes parables about complete trust and confidence in God, they are suddenly engulfed in a hurricane-strength storm? See, this, this storm was a first true test of disciples' faith. And how often does this happen to us? We find ourselves in the middle of a storm. Are we more reactionary? Do we forget that our Savior cares? Do you forget that he loves you? God uses storms for, for a reason. Sometimes they're used to discipline us. Sometimes they're used to bring unbelievers to faith in God. Many times, many times are used not only to test our faith, but to bolster it, to make our strength stronger. And Jesus was using this storm to test the disciples' faith. He sovereignly had the disciples he wanted in this very boat. He sovereignly brought about the storm at the precise time and strength that he wanted. Because a faith that is untested is a faith that cannot be trusted. I'm going to say this again. A faith that is untested is a faith that cannot be trusted. We may find ourselves in over our heads being tossed and jostled about by forces outside our control. And just know that as painful as it may be, it is temporary and necessary. We find in 1 Peter 1, 6-7, in this you rejoice, that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you're in a storm, or, coming, or heading out of a storm, while it could have been to discipline you, it's very likely that you are going through it, at least in part, to test your faith, to bring you closer to God, to purify your faith. Remember, Mark wrote this book to Gentile Christians at the time of Nero. Nero, he was a bad dude. He, he blamed Christians for the burning of Rome in 64 AD. The resulting persecution forced Christians to meet hidden in the catacombs. Because, as the historian Tacitus wrote, and this is awful, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they're torn by dogs and perished. Or they're nailed to crosses. Or they're doomed to the flames and burnt to, be, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. This is what was happening to Christians at that time. 
And Mark's first readers may have also thought Jesus to be indifferent and uncaring to their struggles and hardship. Meanwhile, in their fear, the disciples thought Jesus was weak and indifferent, so they berate him. There's a rudeness to their approach. Mark's wording reflects the way frustrated and desperate people speak. Imagine yourself in their predicament, but you've acted differently. I don't know if I would have. But we have yelled at Jesus, do you not care that we're going to die? Which now brings us to the third scene. Jesus wakes up. Verse 39, Jesus wakes up, rebukes the wind, and said to the sea, peace, be still. Immediately, there's a great calm. The wind stopped. Usually when a wind stops after, after a storm, the waves take some time to settle down. But not this time. Not this time. Not only did the wind stop, so did the waves. There's a great calm, a dead calm. The water was like glass. No waves at all. So Jesus shows us two things that are opposite of the opinion of the disciples. The disciples thought Jesus was weak and indifferent. But Jesus demonstrates strength and compassion as the Christ, the Son of God. See, in taking a peaceful nap, he shows that, first of all, he was truly human as the Christ. He needed rest. But what the disciples thought was weakness while sleeping through the storm was strength in fully trusting God, having complete faith in God. Jesus was at peace knowing that God loves him. Jesus also demonstrates that he is the Son of God. He is truly God and has sovereign control over the weather. At his command, he let the raging storm out of his cage. At his command, he put a muzzle on it, told it to shut up. This is also reminiscent of Jonah. Remember when Jonah was tossed in the water? What happened? The storm immediately stopped, and there was a dead calm. God stopped that storm. Jesus shows strength because Jesus is God who stops storms. Now, as scene three ends, and we head into scene four, we'll see the compassion of Jesus. Verse 40, Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Can you imagine the disciples? Why are we afraid? Are you kidding? We're afraid we're going to drown. We're afraid you didn't love us. If you loved us, you wouldn't let these things happen to us. Do you ever feel that way? Been in situations where you wouldn't think God would let you go through it? But Jesus isn't asking these questions, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? But saying that your premise is wrong. Jesus says, I do allow people to go through storms. You had no reason to panic. If they had no reason to panic during the storm, as Jesus says, they would have had no reason to fear after the storm. Instead, Mark writes in verse 42 or 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now the disciples are really afraid. Why? 
They're afraid of the storm. The storm stopped. Shouldn't they be happy? Instead, they became even more terrified. Why? Because Jesus had done what only God can do. Mark's narrative now draws comparisons to Psalm 107, another allusion to the Old Testament. Psalm 107, 32 through 20, 23 through 32, speaks of God stirring up a great tempest that causes the sailors on this boat to, to melt. They, they, were, you know, they were panicking, you know, just like the disciples. And they cried to the Lord in their distress. And we read in Psalm 107, 29, he, meaning God, made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. It is God alone who possesses the power and authority to kill the storm. And Mark tells us that Jesus has the power and that same power and authority. Jesus did not call upon a higher authority, he was the authority. Jesus simply said, peace, be still. Jesus is not someone who has power. He is power itself. He is the Son of God. So you need to answer the same question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark answers the disciples' question in Mark 1.1. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is truly man and truly God. And Jesus does what only God can do. And Mark is inviting his disciples then and now, Jesus' disciples then and now, to recognize in Jesus the same presence of God. Disciples were more terrified in the calm than they were in the midst of the storm. The storm was powerful. They couldn't control it. Jesus was infinitely more powerful than the, sun, than the storm, yet disciples had even less control over him. That's why they were terrified. Disciples have seen something they could not explain in human terms. They knew they were in the presence of deity. They had witnessed holy power. And Jesus exercised the power and authority of his word, even over nature. He spoke, and the storm stopped. So finding themselves in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, they were consumed with fear because the holiness of God is what people fear most. This is why people run from God and from Jesus Christ. Jesus is cool when he's healing me. Jesus is cool when he's feeding me. He's really cool when he's making religious leaders look foolish. When God exhibits his transcendent majesty, people melt. They become terrified. They want to get away. The storm inside the disciples was far more dangerous than the storm outside of them. Say it again. The storm inside the disciples was far more dangerous than the storm outside. The disciples may be insiders, but at this point, they do not completely understand Jesus. They do not fully trust Jesus. Will their fear turn into faith? And this is where the danger lies. Will the disciples jump over the sides of the boat and take their chances with the water? Or will they see the love and compassion of Jesus and be drawn closer to him? Will their fear turn into faith? 
when you're in a storm, will your fear turn into faith? Disciples had neither control over the storm nor Jesus. The difference is that the storm does not love you. Nature, at some point, is going to kill you. Eventually, your body will wear out and die, or you could die in an earthquake or a fire or a flood or some other natural disaster. Nature is violent, is overwhelming, impersonal. Doesn't know who you are, will have no awareness when it, kill, when it consumes you. And we have no control over it. But if you go to Jesus, he is uncontrollable too. He lets things happen that you don't understand. But if Jesus is God, he must have good reasons for letting you go through these things that you don't understand. Jesus' power is unlimited, and so is, <clears throat> and so is, excuse me, and so is his wisdom and love. Nature is indifferent to you, it doesn't know you exist, it just consumes you. But Jesus, in this compassion, is full of untamable love for you. The power of the storm is unimaginable and doesn't love you. The only safe place to be is in the will of God. Jesus slept through an incredibly powerful storm. Sound asleep, the storm did not wake him up. But what woke him up? It was the cries of those he loves. Jesus is not indifferent to what you're going through. He's not asleep. He is in the boat with you, teaching you to trust God. The disciples knew how powerful and loving he is. They would not have been afraid. And the purpose of the storm was to reveal to them not just the power of Jesus, but also the strength of their faith or lack thereof. The real threat to their faith comes not from a lack of knowledge, but from fear and doubt. And this will not be the last time the disciples are tested. They'll be tested many times. But eventually their faith will be made strong and steady, strong enough to endure the worst persecution man can think of. This storm played a huge part in strengthening their faith. It helped them to cause them to trust Jesus more. How did the disciples learn to completely trust him? It's after Jesus goes through the ultimate storm. The storm in our passage was a test of the disciples' faith. It revealed to them that their faith was lacking. But the disciples, 12 of them who became, who became apostles, eventually learned to completely trust and have confidence in Jesus. Because Jesus went through and endured the ultimate storm. <clears throat> the disciples became, because of this storm, it helped them become the fishers of men Jesus promised to make them. And what is the ultimate storm? It's the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is a divine response to human sin and disobedience. And we're going to see five truths regarding the wrath of God. First, God's wrath is just. God's wrath against sin and disobedience is perfectly justified in accordance with his justice. Because his plan for mankind is holy and perfect, just as God himself is holy and perfect. Romans 2.5 says, 
But because your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Secondly, God's wrath is to be feared because it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And apart from Christ, we are justly condemned as sinners. God's wrath is to be feared because he is powerful enough to do as he pleases. Thirdly, God's wrath is consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of people mistakenly believe the God of the New Testament is wholly loving in contrast to the God of the Old Testament, whom is wholly vengeful. But that is not backed up by what we read in the Bible. We find ourselves, uh, we find tremendously fearful depictions of God's wrath in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. Here's an Old Testament example, Jeremiah 3.23. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. Here's an example from the New Testament, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In the New Testament, from the preaching of John the Baptist, who warned of the wrath to come, to the revelation of Jesus Christ with his vivid depictions of God's wrath, it may be fair to say that the New Testament exceeds the judgments of the Old Testament. Jesus himself spoke regularly about God's wrath when he spoke of the, of the conditions of hell. He called it the hell of fire, the eternal fire. He called it a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. God is going to pour out his wrath upon, his sinner, upon sinners, those who have rebelled against him. Fourth, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. God is love and does all things for his glory. He loves his glory above all, and that's a good thing. God rules to bring himself maximum glory. God must Act justly and judge sin, otherwise God would not be God. And God's love for his glory motivates his wrath against sin. And this is not good news for sinners. If you are not a believer, I hope you're frightened by what I'm saying. The wrath of God is the ultimate storm. Without Christ, we enter this, you will enter this storm yourself. As um, Hebrews 10.31 says, is fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now for the ultimate news. Fifth truth about God's wrath is that God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus Christ. And let's take a look at how. Mark answers the question, who is Jesus? He is truly man. He is the Christ. He is truly God. He is the Son of God. Jesus has the power to heal he has power over demons. He has power, power over the weather. Jesus is in control of all things. And Jesus can do what only God can do. Mark also answers, what did he come to do? Jesus came to enter into the ultimate storm. Mark 10, 33 through 34, Jesus says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, they will condemn him to death 
and deliver him over to the disciples. They'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus came to save people from God's wrath. God's wrath must be satisfied. Sinners will be punished. When you die, you will stand before God and give an account. And you will be judged. If you stand before God by yourself, you better be perfect, as God himself is perfect. But Jesus saves people from God's wrath by taking God's wrath upon himself. He did that when he was hung on a cross. Jesus took the punishment that sinners deserve. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve because we're sinners. That should be us on that cross. That should be us receiving the wrath of God. We have never loved and worshipped God as he deserves. But Jesus was worthy of being a substitute because he is truly man. And there is never a moment in the life of Jesus where he did not love and obey God his Father as he deserves. Because Jesus is truly God, his sacrifice covers all who believe in him. Jesus dying on the cross satisfied God's judgment and therefore his wrath. Jesus rising from the dead means that we will rise from the dead as well. Jesus conquered death, putting death to death. And because of Christ, God can rightly call sinners justified. This is a legal transaction. The payment for sin is the spilled blood of the sinner. And instead, Jesus spilled his blood to pay for your sins. Therefore, the sinner becomes justified before God. Jesus receives our punishment. We receive righteousness of Christ. When God the Father looks upon us, he sees his Son. And as Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this the ultimate news? I just urge you, if you don't believe in Jesus, don't trust him, I urge you that today you turn to him and believe in him and trust in him. Disciples learned to completely trust Jesus because he went through the ultimate storm. So who is Jesus as shown by his peaceful nap and his absolute control over the great storm? He is the Christ, the Son of God, who is both strong and compassionate to sovereignly save his people and is therefore worthy of their trust through any storm life brings. So what does this mean for us? Because of the cross, you can trust him when going through your storm. Storms will come. You may find yourself in a situation completely out of control, out of your control, but don't run from Jesus, Jesus in fear. Cling to Christ. Believe in his word. Trust him with everything. Keep repenting. Keep believing. He is there in the storm with you. We can live without fear because Jesus is in the boat with us. See who Jesus is, what he came to do, and respond with faith. Because even through death, Jesus has promised to get you through to the other side. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess our faith is weak. We confess that we do not always trust you. Lord, grant us repentance, increase our faith. You promise to complete the work that you have started in us, mold us, bend us, shape us, be more like your son, Jesus, our Lord Jesus. 
As we enter into storms, or if anyone is currently in a storm, we pray that your purposes will be worked out. We pray that we will glorify you and get closer to you, that our faith will become stronger. We, may we never forget that you have promised to get us to the other side. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.